First, before the first question, someone asked that I would say a word about May 7. You know what May 7 is? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandment Day. Ten Commandment Day. The most remarkable thing that I have seen in modern history, that the churches that have denied that the Ten Commandments can be kept and have said it was nailed to the cross now want to have a Ten Commandment Day for the entire United States. Without getting too high horse about this thing, saying, look at your inconsistencies, let's use this Ten Commandment Day for telling people about where the Ten Commandments should be placed. Amen. In the heart, not on stone tables. And we can read to them the text, not in tables of stone, but on the fleshy tablets of the heart. So let's use the day. There are movements afoot to get magazines into people's hands on Ten Commandments Day with the Ten Commandments being emphasized. If you find out about those, become a part of it. You might well find something valuable to do. First question. Sure, first question. At your 3 o'clock meeting, um, I was listening to you explain that sometimes... When we read the Bible, our opinions of the Bible may contradict with what Ellen White says about the Bible. Yes. And I, I got the impression that you, at, that you might have said that sometimes the Bible contradicts what Ellen right. White says. Can you ex- Someone explain? Someone else mentioned that, okay. yes. What I was saying was that my colleague said that sometimes Ellen White's ideas contradict the Bible and that when her writings contradict the Bible, we reject her because she can't have veto power over the Bible. So he was saying that there is an inevitable conflict at times between the Bible and her writings. When that happens, we take the Bible and reject her. What I was trying to point out, and perhaps I didn't do it well enough, is that that attitude says that my opinions of what the Bible say supersede what Ellen White says the Bible says. And at that point, my opinion becomes the authority and Ellen White is no longer the authority. And I, what I was wanting to say was that at that point, I am placing my mind over the inspiration of the Word of God. That is making of none effect the Word of God by our tradition. So I was opposing the view of my colleague on that point. Go ahead. So you would say that the Bible and Ellen White never contradict? What I am saying is just as... Just as Paul does not contradict James, that was Martin Luther's problem. He saw direct contradiction there. I believe that Paul does not contradict James. I believe that Jesus does not contradict Paul. For instance, some have said that Jesus taught the new birth as justification and Paul taught legal justification. But I'm saying, no, they don't disagree at all. They're in total harmony on that point. Uh, Does the Old Testament contradict the New Testament? So what I'm saying is apparent contradictions in inspiration always resolve themselves with added study. That's what I believe. I will not take it to the extent of details. Let's be very careful on this. Here is an area where sometimes we stumble and fall. Were there 72 people or 70 that came out of Egypt with with Jacob? that came out of Israel into Egypt. Seventy-two or seventy. Genesis has it one way, Acts has it another way. Seventy-two or seventy. Uh, There is a text in the New Testament in which the uh, text is quoted, and then it's the wrong author in the Old Testament is quoted as the author of that. What are we going to do with those things? Discrepancies. People say that's proof that the Bible contradicts itself. You know, in the book of Chronicles and in the book of Samuel, 
In the one book, it says the Lord caused a spirit to David to number Israel. In the other, it says Satan sent a spirit to David to number Israel. Well, who was it? The Lord or Satan? And so we're dealing here with some apparent contradictions. Remember how inspiration works, my friends. Inspiration does not give verbal statements. Inspiration does not give details. It does not give chronologies. It does not give historical backgrounds. Inspiration gives concepts of truth. And the prophet then must find the historical background of that. As Ellen White so clearly said, when the great controversy details were revealed to her, when she saw in vision what had happened during the Middle Ages and the Reformation times, she saw, as her son described it, flashlight pictures of that time. And then she went to the history books to find out what king was ruling at that time, what nation it was, what the city was in which it occurred, and, there, and she put that into the vision, even quoting from many Protestant scholars on that point, Wiley, etc., on these various points to substantiate the history. The Lord does not always give details. She was given a, she said there were so many rooms in the sanitarium at uh, uh, Elmshaven. Well, it turned out there were more rooms than that. St. Helena Sanitarium. <laughs> what? No, not, not Paradise Valley. Up at Elmshaven. Wasn't it? Was it Paradise Valley? Am I wrong on that? Okay. Corrected. I stand corrected. Paradise Valley. The wrong number of rooms in the sanitarium. She said, the Lord never revealed that to me. The Lord doesn't reveal details like that to prophets. We've got to be very careful. He reveals truth. He reveals concepts. He reveals precepts. And then the prophet fills in certain details. So there can be apparent contradiction of details. There will never be contradiction of truth. I know that's a hard one, and people have stumbled over that. But we've got to have a correct understanding of inspiration, or we will make mistakes. All right, Brother Lee. And perhaps, uh, let's see, how can we do this with the microphone? I don't know if we can. Yeah, let's, let's get it over here, and we'll get yours. He, he was standing. Oh, we can bring the whole thing over. I'll bring it back after. Hold on just a minute. Well, uh, since this is being recorded, I think I had better ask my good brother here a question first, so I'll hold my hand over the mic just a minute here. here. <laughs> you know what took place last Wednesday morning at the Spring Council regarding your friend in the review? No, I don't. Please share with us. Well, no, no share with all of us. No, no. no. <laughs> They're going to hear. <laughs> They're going to hear. You don't want to do that? I'll still share it with you. Oh, boy. You've really opened up something here. <laughs> no, I haven't. What, what I don't do is I don't generally get in on the uh, intimate workings of some of the committees that happen these days, and I hear it just like you folks do from the grapevine. So I'm waiting to hear. Yes, sister. Uh, you mentioned that Christ took our tendencies to sin yes. in the mind and the body. Yes. And it's been a while since I've studied it, but I believe there's a spirit of prophecy quotation that says that Christ did not take our propensities. Propensities, good point. I wonder if you could explain the difference between a tendency and a propensity. Yes, yes. Let's be very clear that the word propensity does not occur in Scripture. It is an Ellen White concept. She uses the word Scripture does not. So the key question is, what did she mean in the letter to Baker, Baker letter, uh, when she said that not for one moment was there in Christ an evil propensity? 
The problem is you look it up in the dictionary and propensity is inclination or tendency in the dictionary. And so now we have that little dilemma that we are faced with. Uh, here at this point, I think I'm going to share two or three statements from the Spirit of Prophecy that might help to give us a little bigger perspective on this so we get it just as clear as we can. You'll be patient for just a moment. not retain one sinful propensity. That's you and me. We need not retain one sinful propensity. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 943. Well, how long do we have to keep our tendencies, the tendencies of our nature? Or do you believe in holy flesh? That the tendencies of our nature will disappear at the, second, at the close of probation, as Brinsmead believed. How many of us believe that? I hope none of us, because it's not taught in the Bible or the spirit of prophecy. Our fallen nature stays until the second coming of Christ. Our tendencies to sin stay until the second coming of Christ. They were born into us, they stay. But we need not retain one sinful propensity. So there must be a difference. She says also, uh, the grace of God works in us to deny old inclinations, to overcome powerful propensities, and to form new habits. What's the parallel there? Propensities, habits. Christ Object Lessons 354. She says, although their evil propensities may seem to them as precious as the right hand or the right eye, they must be separated from the worker, or he cannot be acceptable to God. Propensities separated. Not tendencies, propensities. Testimonies to ministers 171 and 172, and then listen to the statement which may unlock it. Propensity, natural or acquired. Upward look, page 313. Propensity, two categories. Natural, born into us, or acquired, chosen, developed. Habits. Which propensities can you get rid of today? Not your nature, not your tendencies, but your habits. We need not retain one sinful habit, is what she's saying in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 943. Not one habit is inevitable for us to retain, although our natures and our tendencies must be retained. There are three meanings for the word propensity in the writings of Ellen White. Number one, holy propensities. Number two, fallen propensities. And number three, chosen propensities. We inherit holy, we inherit fallen, we develop chosen. We develop a sweet tooth for ice cream or whatever it is. It's not born into us. Some people have no desire for it, but we develop certain propensities and they are encouraged by repetition and they can be discouraged by the power of Jesus Christ. They can be reversed. Propensity, in my judgment, refers to those parts of our lives which we have developed and which can be reversed by the power of Jesus Christ and not for one moment was there an evil habit pattern in the life of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. Not for one moment did Jesus Christ develop these negative habits. So, 
I make a difference between tendencies and propensities. Not on the basis of the dictionary, but on the basis of context and usage. That's how we determine the Bible or the spirit of prophecy meaning. Context and usage, not dictionary. Don't ever, ever use a dictionary to define a meaning of the word in the Bible. Flesh. What are you going to find in the dictionary? No help at all for the meaning of the word flesh in the writings of Paul. You've got to go by what the author meant by the word, not what a later dictionary says the word meant. Yes? Is it true that Des Ford has ceased uh, keeping the Sabbath? Is it true that he has ceased keeping the Sabbath? Perhaps you have more information on this than I do, or perhaps someone else can help us here. Here is my latest information, and it's a couple of years old, on what Desmond Ford has done. He has retired to Australia. He has gone back into teaching. The last I heard, I don't know if it's still true, but it was at a Baptist seminary. And he has requested that his name be withdrawn from the membership roles of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Maybe that surprises you, but he has been a member in good and regular standing up until about three years ago. And he requested that his membership be withdrawn at that point from the Pacific Union College Church, which is where I am also a member. And so at this point, that is the last official thing that he has done. I have heard what you have heard, but I have heard no substantiation of that up to this point. Does anybody have any kind of clarification that you know of that is not just rumor? Apparently not. So apparently at this point, if you have anything that you know about, you have more than I do. So it seems, though, from my observation, that when we weaken the influence of the spirit of prophecy, we weaken the Sabbath, it kind of goes... I'll tell you the exact parallel. If Desmond Ford has not done that, a colleague of his has done it perfectly. Now, Zane Kime and Dick Wynn, who... I also worked with at yes. Weimar. Yes. Haven't they also given up? Again, I don't know for sure. Uh-huh. I've heard rumors. I haven't yeah. heard substantiation. I do know this for a fact. The one that was with Desmond Ford in all of this procedure, supported him 100%, came over from Australia to help support what he did by the name of Robert Brinsmead, can from decade to decade show exactly what you're talking about right here. In the 50s and 60s, he supported almost everything we're talking about today. Almost everything, with the exception of original sin. In the 70s, he shifted over because original sin forced him to shift his position. You see, if you believe in original sin, you cannot believe that we are going to be perfect at the close of probation. You have to believe that we'll be perfect at the second coming of Jesus Christ because we will still be uh, sinning by nature until Jesus comes. And Robert Brinsmead had to make a choice between original sin and the perfection of the 144,000. He chose original sin and rejected the perfection of the 144,000. And so he joined with Desmond Ford in his movement at that time. Then in the 80s, he began to question the Sabbath. He began to question the, 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 the sanctuary and the various other things. In the 90s, he became an atheist. And today, the best of my knowledge... There is, no subst- there is no Savior. There is no atonement. The only sin is not in being a good person. That's the only sin there is. One last comment. Europe really needs your messages. Mm. Mm. I just got back from Newbold College where mm. I spent 10 days giving seminars. Mm. I met so much opposition to Ellen White yes. and the Spirit of Prophecy. A school I went to 44 years ago, mm. I saw... 
yes. complete change. Yes. Dr. Norsko of Olson yes. was the principal yes, of the college when I was there. Yes. Ellen White, Spirit of Prophecy, in a beautiful balance. Yes. Not anymore. They're yeah. playing soccer today as we speak. Sure. On the Sabbath. Sure. And a lot of other things, co-ed dorms and so on. But Europe is even farther That's gone right. than England. That's right. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Europe. They were unfortunately afflicted by the teachings of a man who had great influence in the Adventist church in Europe named Conradi. And he did not like the spirit of prophecy. He did not like some of the other issues of Adventism. And there were very few spirit of prophecy books translated into the European languages for, for decades. And only now are they beginning somewhat to be translated. So my friends, be very thankful at this point that you happen to be in a land where spirit of prophecy is easily accessible. In some parts of the world, it's almost impossible to get a spirit of prophecy book. I've noted one little thing, and I'm just going to say this right now, right out of the blue. The one country, and I'm not saying the only country, but the one I've become acquainted with that held pre, has held pretty strongly to the teachings of Adventism is the country of Romania. And the reason for that country is because of the high value placed on the spirit of prophecy during these years. It didn't succumb to that rejection whole, wholesale of the spirit of prophecy. That's the difference that I have seen in one country in Europe. All right, I've seen a hand here. Yes. Dying of curiosity, do you know anything about Dog Badger? I know National Geography was... All right, about the, the, the National Geographic program. You've heard about that, that he's been interviewed on, on the issue of prophecy along with a number of... Let me just say this, first of all. You will hear a beautiful... I'm sure, I haven't heard it. You will hear a beautiful testimony by Doug Batchelor of the authority of Scripture and the value of prophecy. And then the very next thing you're going to hear is a total denial of all of that by various other faces appearing on the National Geographic program. They are going to interview a whole bunch of people with various different views on the subject. And so it'll be a little uh, uh, smorgasbord right there, as, as you will see it. So it will not be quite as wonderful as we might hope, although we can still hope that his message will come through to the hearts of honest people. And the last question you ask is, I have the faintest idea when it's going to be on. Does anybody know? Already passed? Is it already done? They programmed it. When will it air? That too? It aired? No. No. Yes? On? Okay. So he saw it. Well, that doesn't mean it won't be seen again. National Geographic runs it over again. So, does nobody know? Do you know? He says it has been seen already. Yeah. Yes. But that doesn't mean it won't be seen again. Yeah. I'm in the dark. Looks like the rest of you are too. Yes? Summer sometime. There you go. Okay, that's the answer then. Let's get on the website and find out. Yes? The Amazing Facts website. Amazing Facts website. Um, if Christ uh, did not have um, habits to overcome... Yes? How is he tempted like we are with habits? That's my question. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and you know, Ellen White was posed the question, how can Christ be tempted in all points like as we are? 
That's a difficult question. How is a woman tempted? Does a man know how a woman is tempted? Jesus died at the age of 33. How does he know how a 90-year-old people suffering from a degenerative disease is tempted? I watched my parents go through a very difficult period of their life when they no longer had the strength that they once had. Jesus never passed through that experience. So there are a number of areas where you could say he didn't have that same exact temptation that we have. And Ellen White, when she was asked that question, she said, that is a mystery. That is a mystery that we do not have a complete answer for, that we are not given. What I'm going to say is very simple, and it may not satisfy, but it's the only answer I know. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three great temptations of man under which all temptations are subsumed. The fleshly impulses, what we see, and our desires, our ambitions, our wants, our feelings, our attitudes. You can put all of the temptations that we come into under those headings, male or female. We just have different varieties of approaches to those temptations. Jesus was tempted in all points, all basic areas of human temptation. He was tempted to yield to all of these things. Now, he did not form the habits that we have. He was not bound by the chains that bind us. So how could he feel the depth of my chaining? He could feel very strongly because, remember, his nature was pure. His nature was holy under the control of the Holy Spirit. Me? I'm half yielded to sin already. Sin doesn't appear very repulsive to me. It appears attractive. It appears reasonable. It appears logical. For if I were truly a holy being, repugnant to sin, I would be a so... What's the word? Every time sin approached me, it would be just like an electric shock penetrating into my space. And I would feel its horror, and I would feel the pain of it. Now it's kind of, well, I've lived with it all my life, no big deal. I don't know which is harder. I'll be honest with you, I don't know which is harder. To fight against the chains of sin that bind me and seem to be un, uh, impossible, or to be in a position where, where a holy person is assaulted every day with unholiness, and satanic thoughts and satanic ideas and satanic attitudes and is constantly being hit with this every moment of every day. I honestly don't know which is harder to live with on a day-by-day -day basis. So in answer to your question, I don't have a good answer. I know that Jesus was tempted to everything that I have formed a habit of without forming the habit of it. I know that. Every kind of area of my life where I have formed a habit, he was tempted to form that habit. Uh, in terms of overcoming evil habits, no, he was not. And I think Ellen White said the only wise thing, that that is a mystery that God has not revealed to us. I know that isn't the greatest answer, but that's all the answer I have. All right, anyone else? You see, I didn't promise to give you any answers today. I promised you could ask questions. I have a question. Um, I'm hoping I can articulate it. Have you noticed those that believe that Jesus took the unfallen nature of Christ 
also believe that sanctification is not a part of the gospel. Yes, yes. You've articulated it very well. There is no reason I would bring up the subject. There is, listen carefully. I would not touch the subject of the... I believed, let me, let me go back. As a young pastor, I believed in that Jesus took our nature. I even preached a sermon on, or two on it in my churches. I still have those sermons that I preached way back in 1960 and 1970. I hit it maybe once every three or four years. Only when Desmond Ford came on the scene and he began to emphasize justification only as the way of salvation and sanctification being like a caboose on a train which follows along for the ride but is not necessary for salvation nor does it contribute to our salvation, did I begin to wonder why? Why did he come to that conclusion? And then I began to see that he taught something about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ did not battle against our temptations. He didn't have to fight the fight of sanctification. He didn't have to fight growing in holy, to, to grow in holiness. And that we are all born with sinful natures anyway, therefore sin is as natural as breathing. So sanctification can only be 50% effective at best. So the only reason for touching the fallen nature of Christ it because it impacts on justification, sanctification, and perfection of character, the 144,000 and the vindication of God. That's the only reason it's become important. And those who are saying it doesn't matter are also saying sanctification doesn't really matter for salvation. It is good for witnessing, it is good for personal growth, but it is not something which saves or causes us to be lost. And it all ties into one package. As someone has said, the nature of Christ's discussion is a branch off the righteousness by faith discussion. And that's why we talk about it. All right, good questions. Anyone else? I ran you out of questions. Please, come on, let everybody hear. Uh, we want to go on to his question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll have to pass on that. <laughs> yes, brother, come on. It seems though uh, Ellen White made a distinction between her published writings yes. and her unpublished. Yes, uh, she did. But I'm not sure that I got that distinction when you spoke earlier. All she really said was, if you want to know what I teach, consult my published writings. She was having a problem with people who were taking what she said in a sermon, taking what she said in a private letter, taking what she said here, and saying, this is what Ellen White believes. And she was saying, people are running away with my teachings and misquoting me and misstating what I believe. If you really want to know what I say, go back to what I've published. I've put it together. I've edited it. I've shown what I believe there. Don't misstate out of context what you've heard me say. So she was trying to make a point that there is a difference between what we're doing right now and what I print in my book, which I've carefully analyzed and tried to make it right. Here I might make a misstatement. You know, I might say something that's unguarded and shouldn't be, shouldn't be taken. And Ellen White was trying to say the same thing. So the point, there's a real point there. The whole issue on propensities comes from an unpublished letter written to an unknown, quote-unquote, evangelist in Tasmania, which was never designed for publication. That statement on propensities she never put in her books. She apparently never wanted it to be, see the light of day. It was written to a man who had a problem. We don't know what the man's problem was. We have to guess at it. But she wrote it to the man because he needed to be reproved. 
And so it was put in the vaults because all of her letters go to the vaults. And only when some diligent researcher going through the vaults discovered it in the mid-50s did it come out to the light of day and all of a sudden it was the great answer to the nature of Christ's discussion in the Adventist church. As one person said, it was that shining moment that unlocked the door to our understanding. And I think right there we're dealing with exactly this problem. And it could be a whole bunch of other issues as well, the compilations and all of the other things that come into bearing in this area. So I do think we've missed a principle there, but go ahead. Could you speak to the uh, microphone? Sorry. Uh, could you speak to the uh, inspiration of published and unpublished oh. writings? Because that mm -hmm. is uh, commonly what's yes. brought up is, is she's making a distinction there. And she's saying, no, uh, it's my published things that are inspired and not the uh, letters and things of this nature. Remember the statement that we read at the beginning of our outline today. We need to go back to that, the first page of the outline of today. The fifth paragraph, the fifth paragraph. Weak and trembling, I arose at three o'clock in the morning to write to you. God was speaking through clay. You might say that this communication was only a letter. This is a non-published letter. See, the testimonies only have a few of her, not well, a few, quite a few of her letters, but not all of them. Yes, it was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that had been shown me. In these letters which I write, in the testimonies I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. So she's making a very clear statement there that in the letters, not all of which will be published, they are reflecting what God has told her to write to that individual. All letters of counsel. So again, we're making a distinction between letters of counsel and letters to her husband like, you haven't written to me so long, I wonder if you're still alive. She even told, believe it or not, she even told a sister, I think I remember my facts correctly on this, that had received a particular letter about her husband to burn the letter. Because some of the things she said she was not happy about saying. Let's give prophets the chance to be people. Let's allow them to have some personal lives. They can write to their children, they can give counsel, they can write to their husbands, they can write grocery lists, they can do the things a normal person does. But giving counsel regarding a person's relationship with the Lord, regarding the work a person should do, is in a different category than personal notes to a husband about personal problems. So yes, all letters of counsel, of direction from the Lord, as expressed, are letters in which she is referring to right here, published or unpublished, because only a selection were published in the testimonies that she deemed to be valuable for everyone. She did not deem that to be valuable for this letter in Australia. That was for that man alone. It wasn't a problem for the general people, so she did not include it. So, yes, there is no distinction in any way that I know of between published and unpublished writings, particularly when she instructed the people after she died to publish her unpublished writings because she said they needed to be drawn together and given to the people. So that has to be erased. There is no difference in inspiration. There is only a difference in context and purpose. And we must take that into account. Usage, not authority. Yes. Hi, thank you. Um, I often hear today uh, that some people, uh, they often say that 
some of her letters or writings in the testimonies, they say that we today are taking them out of context. Absolutely. That they do not apply to today. Yes. Because she was writing to an individual or a church. Yes. I do understand that portion. But can't we take the principles that are in those letters, the problems that were being addressed in those letters or those statements, and apply those principles in our own life today or within our own individual churches? Often I have heard these two statements that certain things in the spirit of prophecy do not apply today. It was only written for then. And the other statement I hear is that we're taking it out of context. Yes. And both of those can be true. All right. How do we deal with this subject? Here we're moving from the question of authority, which I spent my time on, to the question of interpretation. Have you heard the word hermeneutic? Nice, big, fancy theological word. It means how to interpret the writings. See, first you accept the authority of the Bible. You say, Moses spoke from God. Then you have to try to figure out what Moses meant when he said, if you collect wood on the Sabbath, you should be killed by stoning. How does that apply to us today? See? Uh, so we have to interpret what has been given in light of present-day realities versus uh, cent- uh, centuries-ago realities. Interpretation is the hard part. Authority should be nailed down for us. Unfortunately, that isn't even true. But interpretation is the hard part. Should we take that letter that Ellen White wrote to a certain individual that said that he should take a glass of grape juice and take a, 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 a raw egg in it every day? I think it was every day. Every day he should have a raw egg and a glass of grape juice. <laughs> and so are we going to take that as a way that we should live every day? And then when she wrote to another family, she said, don't ever set eggs before your children. What are you going to do? Two inspired counsels from the Lord to two different individuals. And so our problem is, isn't it, trying to understand the situation in both cases. Trying to understand the background. What are the principles applied? In one case, the man had so deteriorated his body by extreme living that he had to build up his system again. And he had to build it up by a very extreme measures. In the other case, children were being raised who already had strong passions appetite and all the rest, and temper and lust. And she was saying, eggs inflame that kind of tendency. And they produce more of that in those who already have those tendencies. So she was saying that in two different situations, two different counsels would apply, and we have to make that application to our situation. Where are we in that kind of situation? Are we very anemic? Have we depleted our body? Or are we robust and strong and are we overdeveloped in some areas that we need to curb? And so we take different, different methods. So I'm going to suggest that that becomes the hard part, to interpret the background and the context. Yes, we do ignore context sometimes. And especially in compilations, you have to go back and check the context or you can be in trouble. You have to check out if that heading really is what the text under it says. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And you have to check it out for yourself and see what it really says. Now, do some of her writings no longer apply? Yeah, 
Women don't have to learn how to harness horses anymore. That means they shouldn't bother with anything mechanical, right? Learn to drive, learn how to change oil, learn to change a tire if it has to be. Isn't that the harnessing of horses principle? Find the principle behind it, the bicycle craze. What was the principle? Fashion, expenditure of money. We've got plenty of that going today. Go down to Circuit City and spend all you want. All kinds of fads that come into play that can be exactly the bicycle problem of a century ago. So while there are some applications that don't apply, the principles always do apply. It is our job to find principles. It is our job to apply principles to situations in our lives and not necessarily point to the other guy and say it applies to you. We may be totally wrong there. And that becomes the difficult area. Principles, yes. Applications do change. Can you address concerns regarding um, people saying Ellen White changed or clarified what she said God told her regarding maybe the shut door? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Did Ellen White change some things that she said uh, because there was criticism? I have found an interesting thing, just for shut door, for instance, because you brought that up. Ellen White did do some clarifying about what she believed uh, as, the, as, the, as the charges came. And she did say, yes, we said one thing, but we were wrong. That was before she got a vision on the subject. We believed that the door of probation closed for everyone in 1844, October 22. You were either going to heaven or you were gone. The shut door. She says we were wrong on that point. But she says we missed something about the shut door at that point. That a door was shut, a probationary door, for all those who had rejected the light that God had given to his people, that had gone into Babylon and were not coming back at all, the churches that had cast the Millerites out, the churches that denied the soon coming of Jesus Christ, the churches that became daughters of Babylon. They shut a door. Now, individuals could still come in, she said. But just as in Jerusalem's time, Jerusalem shut their door before the whole nation was closed in 34 AD. Jerusalem shut their door when they crucified Christ. But individuals could come in even later. And so what we're dealing with here is various degrees of shut door. And yes, Ellen White had to do some clarifying. Because original statements were wrong. Original statements were misunderstood. Original statements were taken out of context, and Ellen White had to do some clarifying on various points. It's not just that, as you well know, but not a lot of them, not a lot. There are some points in which she had to do some clarifying of what she actually said and what, she, what was meant by what she said, and usually you'll find good explanations of those in the um, appendixes or the, the notes at the end of some of the chapters, like in early writings where you'll find a little expansion of what was done, what was said, and how it was, how it was understood. So there aren't many of those, but yes, she did, as Bible prophets had to do as well. When Paul was challenged on certain points, he had to clarify what he meant and uh, what offering food to idols was all about and things like that. And uh, Yeah, prophets have to backtrack sometimes. Nathan had to at one time, too. Yes? Now, uh, there are times when Ellen White quotes portions of Scripture and interprets them. Um, okay. Are we supposed to take that as a final word? Good point. 
is Ellen White an exeget- the, the final exegete on scriptures, exegesis. That means interpreting the word as it stands, taking that text and giving its full meaning in its context the way it is written. Did uh, Bible writers always do that? Did Bible writers always exegete scripture? What does Matthew 7.14 say? Is that right? No, that's the wrong text. Matthew 121. What does Matthew 121 say? No, not that part. Ah, a virgin shall conceive. What does Isaiah 7.14 say? Aha, a young woman shall conceive. Yes, it does. Isaiah 7.14 says a young woman shall conceive. And you notice if you check the Isaiah prophecy carefully, you read through it, and, uh, and it continues. It's not just that. Behold, it says in the King James, a virgin. In the original, it's a young woman. Bear a son. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. What is this prophecy? There will be a woman who will bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel. And before he knows the difference between right and wrong, the land that you are afraid of will be abandoned by her kings. That was a literal prophecy fulfilled in literal terms in Isaiah's time. Some speculate that this was Isaiah's wife that was the young woman. That is speculation. But this was a literal prophecy for Isaiah for the deliverance of the people at his time. Does Isaiah, does Malachi, does Matthew exegete that passage? Not at all. He applies that passage to a totally different situation using a different word which can mean only virgin, not young woman, not married woman, not anything like that. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, and he shall save his people from their sins, not foreign kings. That was the issue in Isaiah's time. But he will save his people from their sins. He will be the deliverer, the atoner, the savior. So, I, so, Ma, so Matthew does not exegete. He applies in a different context, not in the original context, not explaining the text, but applying it in a different situation. It happens all the time in the Bible. Happens all the time. The prophecies of Joel, you know, young men shall see visions, applied in the New Testament to Pentecost. So, does Ellen White exegete scripture? Very little. Very little does she exegete scripture. She does what most prophets do, apply scripture to the present reality, whether or not it's the original meaning of the text. And Ellen White does that most consistently. A few times she exegetes scripture, most particularly in the prophecies of Daniel 8 and 9, when she is dealing with the 70-year prophecy and the 2300-year prophecy. She does careful exegesis. She shows at each point the development of the text, how it applies, what it means exactly. But most of the time, she will take an appropriate text that apparently the Lord brings to her mind, apply it to a situation today which may or may not have any relevance to what it originally said, but applies now today in the situation of today and makes it an application. So that means when we go to the text, our job isn't done when we read the Spirit of Prophecy. We've got to be studying what the text says to know what it meant in the original. If we want to do careful exegesis and apply it to our time. 
So that's why I said you start with the Bible first, then you go to the spirit of prophecy. Because if you start with the spirit of prophecy, you may get just an application of the text and not the original meaning of the text. And I'd like to know both, frankly. I'd like to know what the original meaning is, and then I'd like to know what the prophet's application is. But exegesis is a job that the Lord has left us to do, and he didn't give prophets all of the exegesis so that we can kind of be just robots reading what the prophet said. We've got some work to do. You're going to be sick of me here. No, no, not at all. You, you sparked a memory of a prophecy. I got to know Ronald Reagan, did his portrait, and I was in his library for quite a bit of quality time. This was where, California? or In California, right. after the White House. Okay. Uh, uh, and before the Alzheimer's. Yes. I found him extremely alert and intelligent, okay. but hard of hearing. And he pointed to some pictures on the, on the wall of the library. Very proud to show him shaking hands with Gorbachev. And a portrait of Pope John Pope. Paul. Yes. Blessings to Ronald Reagan yes. from the Pope. Yes. Do you know what he told me? Tell me what you think of this. I heard this from his own mouth. It was Protestant America cooperating with the Catholic Vatican that brought down the evil empire. Mm, that's right. What do you think of that's that? That's his legacy. Absolutely I, I, I right. nearly shouted at him, but yes, I, I yes. held my breath. Do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> yes. You know, this is prophecy you, right. that you're helping to fulfill. A hand <laughs> across the gulf. Yes, you did hear something right from the horse's mouth that all of us have believed because others have said it. You know, not just Ronald Reagan, but others have said exactly the same thing. And it's remarkable, isn't it, that he considers that to be one of his greatest legacies because he brought down communism. He brought down communism in a way that none of us could have predicted. Remember how many of us, us, Adventists, were saying that there's got to be some way that communism is part of the beast or the image or a horn or something in, in Bible prophecy. And a few people were saying, no, the communism is not part of the prophetic images of the Bible. How can that be when it's so strong, it's so powerful? Look how it's taking over the world. It's in, in South America. It's in Africa. It is permeating the world. It's a global power. It's not going to be stopped until Jesus comes. And here comes a man working with another human being, but a church leader who destroys in just a couple of years everything that human beings said could not be destroyed. Only now we have one or two major countries of the world left that profess real communism. And that's it. And, uh, and so here, yeah, he saw this as his great legacy. This was his great legacy and truly a remarkable legacy. But unfortunately, it had to be with the cooperation of a power that we will greatly come to regret that association with. That's what he didn't see and what you know. Yes. Yes. That is remarkable. All right. Anyone else? Or do you want to go home? All right. So once again, I thank you for your friendship, for your attention. And most of all, I want to thank you for remaining true to Seventh-day Adventism. When there are a lot of forces that are trying to sweep that from under your feet. Don't let it go. It's too precious. And there are too many ways that it can be denied these days while professing to uphold it. Don't let that happen. May God be with you. May the next year be a year 
that will, we always say this, bring us one year closer to the Lord's coming, but that's a cliche. May this year really get us close. May it really get us close, because I think, I think I see the image to the beast almost formed completely before my eyes. And it won't take much more. Just one more, Ellen White said, unlooked for calamity, and this nation will be thrown into total panic, and the nations of the world perhaps as well. All right, may God bless you. Thank you for coming, and we will see you when the Lord directs.